What is it built in you that makes you want the good guy to win? Why do you walk out of a movie or put a novel down when the bad guys destroy the good guys and you get mad at the author? This is Truth Encounter, a program where we seek to open every page of the Bible and encounter what God has to say to us. Dave invites us to turn to Revelation chapter 14, where we are encouraged by the reality that there are those who are marked by the Lamb who overcome the Antichrist. Have you ever thought about how important marks, insignias, can be in our lives? That's where Dave begins our discussion today. Have you ever thought about the importance of marks, marks and symbols in your life? A lot of you will watch the NFL playoffs. If you'll look on the shoulder of every single one of those jerseys, you're going to see what? A mark. What is it? What mark is it? It's a check mark. And then through the different ball games, you're going to have ads that talk about that check mark. And they're going to present some really strong, muscular people, both men and women that are sweating and they're real athletes. And they're going to tell you to just do it because Nike has just developed kind of like Microsoft in the computer industry. Nike, with that little check mark, dominates the world of athletics today. And that mark... You wear those clothes. In fact, it's big bucks just to have a a T-shirt with a check mark on it. But you'll buy it because if you wear that mark, it'll mean you're going to be sweaty and you're going to be in shape and you're going to be like that person that's in the ad. That's what marks symbolize. When the cowboys are riding high, then everybody wants to get one of those jackets. And on those jackets, there's a great big symbol. The mark of the cowboys is a star. Remember, they wear it on their helmets, that great big Texas star, and you're going to buy jackets with that star, and when the cowboys are running high, everybody wants to be associated. Man, I want to have the star of the Dallas Cowboys. You see, the importance of marks in our culture. In the book of Revelation, we've been talking about marks. As we come back to the book of Revelation, in chapter 12, we kind of got a panorama of all of world history. We had a dragon that was presented to us, We had a pregnant woman that was presented to us, and the woman is struggling to give birth to a male child, a great deliverer. And we learn in Revelation 12 that what John the Apostle was doing was introducing us to the storyline of all the Bible. If you open up this book and you wonder, what's this book about? You know, what's the plot line here? It's the story of a woman that's pregnant... And she's trying to give birth to a male child. And the reason that male child needs to be born is this whole planet has chosen to join the evil, rebellious, violent side, the side of the evil one, which is what the dragon represents. And all the way through the Old Testament scripture, you'll feel the tension if you'll be looking for a male child to be born. If you'll be looking for, you know, this great deliverer to come to the earth. Suddenly, when Jesus is born, the male child is here. And the dragon tries to snuff us out. Remember when Herod killed all the babies, and it looks like the male child's going to be destroyed. But the male child's delivered, and he goes to Egypt, and he grows up, and he does all the mighty miracles. And then we come to the trial. We come down to the great conflict with Pilate and Herod, and the male child is put on the cross. And it looks like the male child's been destroyed. It looks like the dragon has won. It looks like all of evil has been able to triumph. It looks like all the deepest longings of our heart, every one of you, 
Every one of you, whether you're a Christian, whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Muhammad, whatever you might be, whether you're an agnostic, there's none of you that want the evil side to win. You don't want the evil emperor to win. In fact, it's inbred in every one of you. In fact, when, when the bad guys win, when the bad guys win, you walk in and say, man, I'm not going to pay my money for that one anymore. That was a real bummer. Who wants that one? You see, it's built in you that the good guys should win. And it looks like at Calvary, it looks like the dragon has won. That's the tension in the story. That's the horror of Good Friday. And then there was Easter morning. And the women went out to check on the dead body of Jesus. And they went into the tomb and the body was gone. And then a few moments later, Jesus himself raised again from the dead, coming back. The only man that could ever do that could escape the clutches of death. And he's alive. And this little band of disciples that saw Jesus began to proclaim to the world, we have the great male child. We have the great deliverer. We have the great king. And his name is Jesus. And that's what started this whole thing that we're a part of. That's what's been going on for 2,000 years. A group of people that know that it'll look like the dragon has won. And there will be times when it looks like all of evil has broken forth. But because our Savior in history has already left the tomb behind, we can be confident that in the end, we're going to win. Revelation 12, that's the story of the whole book. That's the story of the whole book of the Bible. As you move into chapter 13, though, we get into the clutches of the dragon of Satan's last attack against planet Earth. To get into the proper time frame, we need to understand that the rapture has taken place. I believe that the church is going to be taken out. The rapture takes place. Then we don't know what the, there might be an indeterminate amount of time, but then there's a great antichrist, Satan's henchman that we were introduced to in chapter 13 in very extensive discussion. He's the beast that comes up out of the sea. He's the ultimate great Western political leader, and he grabs a hold of planet Earth and he takes control. The beginning of the seven-year tribulation period begins, according to Daniel 9, when this great Western leader signs like a mutual security treaty, a mutual defense treaty with Israel. He says, Israel, I will defend you. I will protect you. He sets up his world government in the city of Jerusalem. And for three and a half years, it looks like this is going to be peace on earth, good, goodwill towards men. The dream of the United Nations is going to become reality. It's going to look like man's going to, going to exalt himself. And, and everyone is going to be exalting in this incredible wonder of technology, this incredible wonder of military power, this incredible wonder of economic prosperity that this Antichrist has brought. But in the middle of the period, we learned in Revelation 13 that this Antichrist turns against anyone that worships the true God, the God of the Bible, the God of creation, and his son, Jesus Christ. Now, back in chapter 7, we were introduced to a group of 144,000 Jews. They were from every tribe, 144,000 male Jews who have been anointed by God. It says as chapter 7 begins that they're going to be protected from the plagues that God brings. And these are like an, uh, like an avant-garde thrust group, like a military point group, like the Marines that hit the attack beach to take enemy territory. 
And I believe these 144,000 are the point of God's attack to counter what Antichrist and also his false prophet. Remember in chapter 13, we were also introduced to a counterfeit religious leader, a person that looked like he was Jesus. He had he had horns like a lamb, but he, in reality, he was a beast. Remember that? He looked like Jesus with lamb-like characteristics, but instead he was really a false prophet. And this false prophet moves all the world as we close Revelation 13. It looks like all the world is worshiping this Antichrist and his false prophet who's leading in this false religion. As we open up to chapter 14, we are asking the question, how in the world... Is, are the forces of good going to win? You say, well, Dave, this is about the tribulation period. Thank the Lord, according to what you teach us, I don't think I'm going to be here. And so what does it have to do with me? I believe this week, this week, you're going to be tempted to feel that this Jesus thing is a losing proposition. In other words, as I go into school, as I go into my job, Jesus is not victorious. It looks like evil wins. It looks like people that don't believe in Jesus win. Just to give you kind of the subtle battle that we're in right now. I'm just taking a break on one of the nights this week. I think it's Thursday night or something when Chicago comes on. Man, I'm going to have a good medical show. We're just going to be able to watch it. They're very politically correct, so they have this brilliant, brilliant female surgeon. And praise the Lord, if some of you want to grow up and be surgeons and brain surgeons, if you're ladies, if you've got the talent, you've got the ability, all blessing to you. And what a mission field to reach the brain surgeons of the world for Jesus. And if you're a man or a woman that has that kind of ability, go for it. But they have this beautiful surgeon. You know, she looks like she's not old enough to get through medical school, but she did. And she's performing this very intricate surgery on somebody. You know, the surgery where they heal Parkinson's, the shakes. And they go through the whole routine like they're in someone's head and they're having the person count backwards and suddenly the tremors stop. Well, it turns out that her teacher, the surgeon, he's beginning with Parkinson's. And he lays this deadly news on her that he needs her because she's his prime student. He needs her to do the surgery on him. Well, man, it's horrible to have to do that to your teacher, but she's the best one to do it. So they have her doing this surgery to relieve her mentor, the man that taught her all that she knows about brain surgery. She's going to perform this surgery on him. And in the middle of the surgery, things go chaotic. And a clot develops, and he goes totally into a coma. It turns out that his little old mother comes in, and she comes in old, and, you know, she's sweet and kind, but she's a Jesus follower. And she tells the surgeon, as her son is in his comatose condition, that Jesus will take care of it. In fact, Jesus has given her son healing energy so that anyone that comes to the hospital and gets close to her son can be healed of their diseases. So they have hundreds of people cramming into this hospital room. And the surgeon is telling her, you cannot do this. You're exposing your son to infection. You're exposing your son to what could kill him. And also the clincher was, you need to let me do surgery because I can relieve the clot. And I can help your son to come awake again. And you need to let me do it. And the dear mother says, I'm not going to do that. This is God's will. God has a plan. Jesus will take care of it. My son's having an incredible ministry now, so we're just going to leave him unconscious so he can minister. Now, I want to ask you a question. Which side do you want to be on? The intellectual, beautiful, young, gifted, scientifically acute surgeon 
or of this mother that believes in Jesus? Which side do you want to be on? You see what I'm saying? You see the subtle messages? You have those messages given to you subtly every day. In fact, most of you kind of just let it go right on by you. You don't even hear what the authors, what the media people in our culture, the lines that they draw. But I want you to learn to be sensitive to it. I want you to learn to realize this thing is real. Why in the world, can you imagine if I described a Buddhist acting weird like this, like this born-again Christian was presented? Man, that program would be off the air. Now you say, well, let's take over CBS or whatever network it's on. Let's just take control. That's not what I'm asking you to do. So I want you to see that every single day you're exposed as a born-again believer and Satan's developing a caricature of a born-again believer as someone that's bigoted, Someone that's narrow-minded. Someone that might be sweet and gentle and kind. I mean, they threw in the chief surgeon in the hospital, said, well, we shouldn't be narrow-minded and everything. But the thrust of the whole program was, finally the surgeon seized control in the middle of the night. She did surgery she wasn't allowed to do, she wasn't supposed to do. But she saved the surgeon's life. He woke up, and then she never told the mother. And so the, the program ended with, the, all of these born-again people are going to believe that God did it. But in reality, we know that science did it, the surgeon did it. Now they didn't preach it as clearly as I did. They did it much more artistically. They didn't just expose it because that's the way you teach people. I expect CBS to do that. I expect the public media. They're not, most of them are not born again believers. How can they know the truth? So don't go yelling and screaming, but I want you to start to be alert to the subtle things that are happening to us. Which side do you want to be on? And our kids are going to wrestle with that. One of the real clinchers in the program was How could a religion that taught that all the Jews go to hell and all the Jews are going to be lost forever and ever, that's really wickedness. Now that's a strong one. In fact, the really key character in the show was a marvelous Jewish doctor who sang quietly to an old man, old Yiddish songs as the old man passed into eternity. And the born-again believer that believes you have to receive Jesus, you have to know Jesus in order to have eternal life was painted as the most bigoted. In fact, they're the evil ones. They're really the dark side. You see the conflict that's going on, but you know what that program never told you? Jesus is Jewish. Jesus isn't Gentile. This whole book of Revelation, we had us as the church from chapter 1 to chapter 3. After you get to chapter 4, God changes gears. It's not just about the body of Christ now. By the way, we do have a mandate to go into all the world to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Don't ever forget that. But I also want you to know that all of time is going to culminate with God reaching out to his Jewish people. The 144,000 are not 144,000 Billy Graham Southern evangelists from the deep south. They're going to be 144,000 Jews. That's why it labeled every single tribe. It's very important for you to get a hold of this because it's one of the biggest lies that's told in our culture is that, is that it's so narrow-minded, it's so confining to think that Jesus is someone that Jews need to believe in. And there's tremendous debate in our culture around that. But I want you to understand that the book of Revelation is telling us the heart of God and I want you as a father of Jesus, to have a heart for Jewish people. 
And if Jesus really is the way, the truth, and the life, and if Jesus really is the one that can guarantee where we're going to go, then who's really in the wrong when they sing to someone that's getting ready to pass into eternity and they have no idea what Jesus has done? They have no idea the life that he can give. Who's really the evil one? And boy, that needs to give us a burden. If we really believe this thing about Jesus... If we really believe, I mean, it's a historical objective fact. Jesus is not a Gentile. He was Jewish. The whole early church was Jewish. The church has had Jews in it from the very beginning. And one of the biggest tragedies of history is that the church forgot that and became culture and became politics and became power. And they became not the church when they did that. But down through the centuries, God has had people like you. Where it's not politics, it's not, your, it's not your outward cultural form, but it's your inner belief. It's your union with this living Savior. And people like you, down through the centuries, have always been reaching out to all men, red and yellow, black and white, because they've met this incredible, wondrous message. Jesus can help us to know that when we die, it's going to be just supper time. It's just going to be our Heavenly Daddy calling us into glory. That's what Revelation wants you to get a hold of. And what I want you to understand is you're going to go through time in your life, time in your school, time in your business, where you're going to feel like you're on the losing side. As I watched that program, I felt lousy at the end of it. I felt like, good night, man. I don't want to be, how, how do, I don't want to be identified with these bigoted people that don't even pay attention to science. And the Holy Spirit had to kind of help me work it through as I say the book of Revelation, just like he has to help you to be in his word, to work things through. So let's open up the, the Revelation 14, because sometimes when you think you're losing, sometimes when you think like you, you've got the raw end of the deal, sometimes it looks like God isn't coming through. God has got an incredible victory for us in the end. Just like a football game where it looks like a team's getting beat all the way through the game. But in the end, if you turn it off too early... You might miss the most exciting part of the game. Look at Revelation 14. We're introduced to these 144,000 point evangelists. Again, look what it says in verse 1 of chapter 14. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb. The focus of Revelation is always on the Lamb of God. And I want you to understand the power of that symbol. We worship a Lamb. He's also a Lion. He's also a King. But we worship a Lamb because we need to always be reminded that our salvation comes through His all-giving sacrifice. He's always for us, the slain lamb. In fact, remember in Revelation 5, we saw him as the lamb standing as if he was slain. If you're wondering about Christianity, trying to figure it out, it's all about a sacrificial lamb. That when we sin, when we do wrong, we know somebody should pay for it. We know that there should have to be some kind of justice here. And the lamb reminds us that when the lamb of God, Jesus, hung on Calvary for us... He was the lamb that justly paid for our sins. And so as we close the last book of the Bible, as we're studying and moving towards the great climax of this book, we're still focused on a lamb. We started out with Abraham offering Isaac, but instead of offering Isaac, he offered a ram, a lamb that's caught in the thicket. All the Jewish sacrifices, we have the lamb. Now here at the end of the Bible, we have the meaning of all those sacrificial lambs. So we always worship the Lamb. And so in our group, 
The idea of the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world should be one of our most precious symbols, one of our basic fundamental rejoicing values that we worship this Lamb who was shed for us as a sacrifice for our sins. They looked and there before me, John saw the Lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. There's the mark. In chapter 13, everyone, as it closed, everyone who didn't have the mark of Antichrist, and I don't know what that mark's going to be. I would just be careful. Don't let anybody mark you unless it's a Jesus mark. I don't know what the mark's going to be, but man, let's just be marked internally with Jesus because that's really the thrust of the book of Revelation. But in Revelation 13, Everyone that would not take the mark, they wouldn't swear allegiance to Antichrist. They can't buy, they can't sell, they're herded like cattle. It's like a gigantic holocaust against those that won't join with Antichrist. It looks like disaster. But now Revelation 14 counters it and says, no, here's the group that had another mark. They didn't have the mark of the Antichrist. They had the mark of Jesus. And I looked, and there sitting on Mount Zion with him was 144,000 who had his name and his father's name. Instead of Antichrist written on their foreheads, they have Jesus controlling their minds. That's the idea here. The idea here, maybe it is an external mark. Maybe during the tribulation period, there will be, you know, computer stamps or anything. I don't know. Man, I, I, will, I hopefully, hopefully will look at that from heaven. But what I do know for sure, I go to the stake for it, the book is saying that there's going to be those that are marked in their minds, their forehead, which in Jewish thinking is what controls your thinking. Like a Jewish person in Deuteronomy was told to wear God's law on their forehead and on like their wrists. And the idea, in fact, if you've seen some really orthodox Jewish people, they wear phylacteries. And though you'll see them with a pouch around like a band around their head with a little... Uh, box here that has some of the law of God in it, usually Deuteronomy 8 and some other portions from Deuteronomy. They also wear a band on their wrist with another little box with the word of God on it. What God was saying in the book of Deuteronomy is that God's word should control the way you think and what you do with your hands. That describes who you are. I can tell what every one of you are by what you think about, what controls your mind, and then what you think about with your head is what you do with your hands and what you do with your feet. And what this text is saying is these, rather than being controlled by the thinking of Antichrist, doing with their hands what Antichrist wants them to do, following this big worldwide movement, these 144,000 were marked in their thinking with Jesus, with the Lamb of God. They were marked in their hands. They used their hands. They used their body to declare the truth about Jesus. We asked the big question, was it a good choice? And that's a really good choice. I want all of you to know, you're all sitting here today, and every one of you are going to live for someone. Is it a good choice? And what it's saying here, notice where they are. They are standing on Mount Zion. Now, what in the world is Mount Zion? Mount Zion in the Old Testament is usually the city of Jerusalem. In fact, a specific portion of the city of Jerusalem, it's the high point where the altar was built and the temple, and it represents where the great worship of Solomon's temple took place. And in all the ancient cultures, like if you went to Babylon, there would be like a mountain in Babylon, even though it was on the desert. They'd build mountains, and it was what they worshipped. If you go to a, a Greek city, they'll have a mountain. Like in Corinth, they have this big, marvelous Acropolis. At the city of Athens, you've all seen the Parthenon, on top of the mountain. What the ancient world was saying with these mountains is, this is the high point. This is the person that rules. If, you're, if you know anything about all of you guys that are military men and women that have been in the military... 
You know that the high ground, the highest point is really strategic. For example, in Israel, when uh, the Jewish wars took place, the Israeli army dropped a ton of paratroopers right on top of 10,000-foot Mount Hermon. They literally dropped their paratroopers right on the top of this mountain, on the rocky crag, just like dropping paratroopers on the top of one of the rocky mountains in Colorado. Why did they have to do that? Hundreds of Israeli paratroopers died doing that. Why did they do that? Because they had to have the highest ground. The person who controls Mount Hermon, controls Syria, controls Lebanon, controls Jordan, controls Israel. You've got to control the top of Mount Hermon if you're a militarist. And that's the idea here. But Mount Zion is much bigger than that. It's not just a military idea. It's like this is the place where the final reckoning will take place. In fact, Zechariah 14. Zechariah 14 pictures the Battle of Armageddon that we'll be studying about later in the book of Revelation. And pictures all the army of the world coming against Mount Zion, coming against Jerusalem. And there's this gigantic campaign that flow forth. And Zechariah declares that on Mount Zion, Yahweh in heaven will win a great victory. As you study Isaiah, as you read the Psalms, Mount Zion, Jerusalem is the place where the creator God finally defends his people. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. I want you to know as the church that there's also another Mount Zion that's talked about. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, it says, But you have come. The writer of Hebrews is trying to help you as a group of New Testament believers to realize how precious the faith is, how important what you've committed your life to. And he says in chapter 12, verse 22 of Hebrews, But you have come to, read it to me, Mount Zion. Is it the earthly Jerusalem? No, you have come to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God. You have come to the judge of all the earth, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, the shed blood, the sacrificial blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel that called for judgment against his brother. Do you understand the power of that? It means that if you've lost a loved one today, they're in a city. They've come to thousands upon thousands of angels. That's the truth, Amen. That's an incredible thing. Like as death began to suck us down and as we're discouraged and we even fear it ourselves, all death can do to us, all physical death can do to us is take us to the heavenly Zion, to the city of the living God. And you're going to see beauty if you think the Atlantic and the Pacific and the stars and the wonder of mountains and the wonder of God's creation is something here. It's only just begun. This has all been polluted by sin. Man, there's another eternal dimension, another city, another place that hasn't been touched by sin, except for Satan being able to accuse his brethren until God finally calls them down and sends them away and casts them out, like we saw in the tribulation period in Revelation 12 when God cast the dragon away. But our loved ones, like my dad, my mom, David, my brother-in-law, and John, my brother-in-law, they're not, they haven't disappeared. They're not gone. They're not annihilated they're not just dust they're waiting for us they're thinking feeling enjoying probably wondering why in the world we just can't get our act together why we just can't believe quite the way we should no they're really encouraging us hebrews tells us 
that we're surrounded with a great crowd of witnesses that shouting for us and cheering for us. But they sure did see things from a different perspective. I want us as a church family to understand, I want to understand how precious it is that we have come to the ultimate eternal Mount Zion. The book of Revelation teaches that eventually we're going to close the book of Revelation. I don't want to jump ahead of the story, but the book, but I will. Revelation tells us that eventually the heavenly Zion becomes united with the earthly Zion. In other words, right now there's a, there's a big interface with a big block. Like you, you can't journey into the spiritual dimension except you see through a glass darkly and you feel the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But right now we're living in a physical world and, and you don't just take little flighty journeys up into the eternal kingdom. Paul did it once. The Lord does it for a few of it. Some of you might have some incredible visions, you know, at special needs and special times and Jesus can reveal himself in special ways. But for the most part, we live here on planet earth and we see things from this earth's perspective but at the end of time God's going to take away that interface and let the two unite he talked about the heavenly Zion the heavenly Jerusalem coming down to earth and you have a great union but I want you to understand that right now during the tribulation period there is the earthly Zion which ultimately at the end of the tribulation period Jesus wins a great victory at Jerusalem and over the forces of darkness. But I believe that here we're still talking about what we saw in Revelation 4 and 5. We're talking about God's ultimate Zion, the ultimate place of strength, the ultimate mountain. When I was a kid, I've often shared with you, some of you that have heard me teach over the years, you remember me talking about going to Maine on vacation. And we used to go up to Maine. And up in Maine, I remember a, a lumberman friend of mine had a great big pile of dirt they were getting ready. He was a lumberman. He was building a building. We had a great big pile of dirt. I mean, it was probably 35, 40 feet high. It was an eight-year-old's wondrous dream. It was the greatest place in the world to play. You could dig tunnels in it. You know, you could make all kinds of forts. You could play war in it. It's just an incredible place. But one of the funnest games we ever played was to get about 30 guys, little guys and girls, fighting on that hill. And the idea was to get on the top of the crest of that 40-foot pile of dirt and throw everybody off that you could. And, man, there would be dust flying everywhere. Man, there would be dirt everywhere. In fact, our parents would come out and they'd look, and all you'd see is this great big gigantic cloud of dirt. But the guy that won the game was when all the dirt had cleared, it was the guy that was on the top of the mountain, the king of the mountain. What Revelation's saying, when all the smoke of history's cleared, when all the conflicts taken place, when all the Hitlers have marched and all the Stalins have marched and, and all the, you know, the, the Shah of Iran and all the different weirdo things that have happened, when all the armies have marched, Jesus, our Savior, that you've invited into your life, that your precious Savior, it says, when all the smoke clears and all the dust settles, Jesus is standing, the Lamb of God on Mount Zion. That's what Revelation's saying. And what it's saying is that this precious 144,000 are standing with him. What an incredible hope. It might look this week like following Jesus is a losing proposition. Brothers and sisters, please, I beg you to hear me. Following Jesus in the end is never a losing proposition. And you need to understand that the way that life works, there are tons and tons of times in life where it looks like the good has lost. It looks like it's foolish to believe in truth. It's foolish to believe in morality. It's foolish to believe in forgiveness. It's foolish to believe in all the promises that Jesus makes. And you're going to go through times of doubt. And I want you to go back to Revelation 14. And you say, I've got to, I'm going to, everyone has to believe. Everyone believes in something. Everyone's committed to something. 
And you need to look at the credentials of Jesus. And I want you to know from the depth of my heart, Mary and I, as for me and my house, we've decided the king of the mountain in our life is going to be Jesus. How about you? That's what I want you to understand. The 144,000 in the midst of the worst time in history, the middle of the tribulation period, they made the right choice. They got marked with the right man. And now they're rejoicing in it. Sure, a lot of them were martyred. God didn't protect them from the attack of Antichrist. He didn't send his punishments against them. They didn't experience the trumpet judgments. They didn't experience the horror of God's judgments. And they didn't experience the bold judgments that God poured forth. But God didn't protect them from martyrdom. He gave them protection for a time, gave them great victories. Thousands upon thousands of people will come to know Christ during the tribulation period. But in the end, they are going to be cut off by the forces of darkness. Just like some of our missionaries will be cut off. Just like sometimes God doesn't give physical protection. But what he's promising here is that ultimately when you see the big picture, they're standing with the Son of God on Mount Zion. What do you do when God wins such an incredible victory? Notice what you do. What do you do? The way that you express victory is you stand up. And when you're really excited, you begin to sing. You begin to dance around. You rejoice. That's what heaven is doing here now. Look what it says. And I heard the sound from heaven like the sound of a roaring, rushing waters. It's just like being at the ocean when you hear that roar like as a hurricane's coming in off Daytona Beach. And you can feel that roar of the crowd. And like the loud peal of thunder, the sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harpists. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. What's happening here? The 144,000, I believe, are singing. Why are they singing? Because they suffered martyrdom. They suffered the jaws of what Antichrist can do. But now they're standing in the court of heaven. And they're doing what the chorus did in Revelation chapter 5. They're singing about the victory. What does it mean that they, they sang a song that only they knew? It was a new song and only they could know it. It doesn't mean that other people couldn't hear the words they were saying. It doesn't, people, doesn't mean that other people couldn't understand what they were singing. But what it's saying is that this is the song that they experienced. In old Israel, like in old Israel, when David took his warriors out to fight and they went down to the Gaza Strip and they, they attacked the Philistines, when they beat the Philistines by the blessing of God, they came back to the city of Jerusalem and the women would line the streets coming into Jerusalem and there'd be tambourines and there would be dancing and the soldiers would march through and all the women and everybody would just mob those soldiers and they would rejoice. Why? Because they, the women weren't going to be raped. Their crops weren't going to be destroyed. Their land wasn't going to be taken. Some of you did experience the end of World War II on, on Victory Day. And we've all seen that famous picture in New York of that sailor grabbing that woman and giving her a big kiss in the streets of New York as all of New York exploded with victory as our soldiers came back. That's what this song of victory is. Hey, you know what worship is? You know what part of worship is? Some of worship is singing songs that express our heart, kind of the yearning of our heart. Like as we sing, farther along, I'll understand why. That's a song of testimony. It's a song saying, I, I, I'm, I'm here on earth and I'm going through the journey of life. Sometimes I experience death with one of my loved ones and my home is lonely. And it's tearful and it's dark and it seems like, what's the use? 
Some, then I go to work and I see wicked people prospering and I wonder like, where in the world is God? And then the chorus comes back, farther along, we'll understand why. Farther along, it's going to be all right. That's a song of testimony. It's talking about a time where we're in the battle. We haven't seen the victories won yet. Singing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The spiritual songs are the testimony songs that we sing to one another, that we sing to our Father in heaven, but we're really singing to testify of the journey that we're making. And you'll hear those kind of songs. But there's also in the Old Testament victory songs. Like as the Psalms close, as they begin to move towards the crescendo, you get kind of like Psalm 97 and go a little bit further. It talks about new songs that are sung to the Lord. And every time those new songs are mentioned, it's not a song of testimony, but it's a song of exhilarating, celebrating praise about what God has done. That's what these 144,000 are doing. The 144,000 are celebrating the praise that they have in God. I want to ask you, what victories has God given you? Like as you think through a week, like one of the things that should happen on Sunday morning is that you should think back over your week and think, what victories have I won? What victories have I seen Jesus bring me? What can I thank him for today? And sometimes in our midst, we should get really excited about that. You know, we get really excited when somebody hits 62 home runs. We can at least maybe go like this because our Savior has forgiven us our sins, given us the eternal life that lasts forever and ever, given us a new family of believers that will never be taken away from us, taken away and destroyed the evil one. He's given us our kids that can follow Jesus as well. And on and on it goes, all the good gifts. Maybe some of you could get your hands out of your pockets. That might be a start. For me, that's a start. What I want you to understand is that part of what the 144,000 are doing is they are really thinking. What I want all of you to do, I don't want you to do anything with your body that you don't feel in your heart, but I want you to do with your body what you feel in your heart. And I want you to realize that one of the things should happen, we should join the new song. One of the great privileges we have here on earth as the body of Christ, as the church of the king, we can celebrate the victory now that Jesus has already won for us. We can encourage one another about the way that Jesus has come through for us. You know why this is so important? Because sometimes when someone's down and they're facing real struggles, it really helps to have another person that's been there and won, seen God win a victory. There's tremendous mutual encouragement that moves back and forth. We, as a New Testament church now, can begin to have our song. You say, we're not going to sing the song of the 144,000. We're not. You know why? Because you're not going to be the 144,000. So that's not going to be your song. It's not going to be what you sing. We're going to sing the songs of victory that Jesus had brought to us. We're going to sing the victories. And when we're in the dregs of battle and we're wondering how we're ever going to get through, we're going to have our songs of encouraging one another as Jesus comes through for us. We don't sing the song of the tribulation, 144,000. They'll have their song. But you know why I'm so thankful as we close today? I have my song and you have your song. And together, as the body of Christ now, we have our song. Let's learn to sing. Let's learn to let what really happens in our life and in our heart, let's let it out. Let's let it express itself. And how we're growing in that and how we're learning to do that, I want you to do that not just corporately together, but I hope you'll learn to do it. Like As you're running to work, why don't you sing about the victories? Nobody will hear you. 
unless you're riding with a partner and maybe you'll have to wait till later. But if you're riding all by yourself, just let it rip with songs of thanksgiving, songs of praise. It'll change your life. Songs of victory. Let's pray. Father, we're going to go on and talk about the purity of these special elite evangelists and their commitment. We're going to go on and talk about the great eternal choices that they laid out to people. We're going to be moving into the final judgments that you bring against planet Earth. And Lord, we're ultimately going to move to the great coming of your son in Revelation 19, the great millennial reign in Revelation 20, and then the great final eternal judgment, the new heaven and new earth. Lord, we're just so thankful for this precious book. And I just want to pray that your Holy Spirit would take something that we just talked about from Revelation 14, and I pray that you would cement it and underline it and drive it home in the lives of my brothers and sisters so that all this week they'll be encouraged. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.